0: So that's a very good place to begin the Dharma talk tonight, which uh, I'd like to um, take the time and the space to reflect on refuge. as it is really a very um, profound uh, contemplation and practice to align ourselves with and becomes increasingly important. Um, particularly when life presents us, either personally or collectively, with uh, challenging circumstances, and we find ourselves being overwhelmed or being lost, or getting washed away uh, with um, feeling defeated and struggling. Um, So, and then we can easily forget that there is this practice um, and this encouragement to realign ourselves again and again with a sense of, of refuge. And tonight we began uh, that, uh, the talk with Barbara um, inviting us through the, the recitation of the refuges, which is very ancient practice. is one of the most ancient um, templates that the Buddha taught was this template of refuge. So I'd like to take some time This evening, just to reflect around this theme, uh, beginning with something that Ajahn Chah said. He said, The Buddha said to find your refuge, and this means find your real heart. Find your real heart. So, this is a profound um, contemplation because so much of what we take refuge in isn't, it's not that it's not real, but it's not really the real heart. And therefore we can find ourselves feeling let down or feeling shaken by circumstances of, of life, and m- much of which is beyond our control. But to find our real heart, another way that the Buddha talked about the real heart, he talked about it as the unshakable, uh, liberated heart, that which is sh- unshakable in the face of that which is shaking, and quaking, and uh, transient, and difficult. And I think I really wanted to talk about that because so much feels so difficult <laughs> these days. Um, uh, both, perhaps, for, for some of us personally, in what's happening in our lives, uh, and definitely collectively. I think we'd have to really have our blinkers on not to understand that we, we live in a world well, that's definitely quaking and shaking and changing and challenging on so many different levels. And it's very hard to know how to respond, actually. Um, and it's very hard not to get just overwhelmed and lost in a feeling of, of reactivity or despair um, when, when there's so much um, that is uh, beyond our control and that confronts us. Rilke said, and I'd like to also begin by um, reading a little from the great poet um, Maria Reina Rilke. You darkness that I have come from, I love you more than all the fires that fence in the world. For the fire makes a circle of light for everyone And then no one outside learns of you. But the darkness pulls in everything. Shapes and fires, animals and myself. How easily it gathers them. Powers and people. And it is possible a great presence is moving near me. I have faith in nights. And He also said, The mystery speaks to us as it makes us, then walks with us silently out of the night. These are the words we dimly hear that you sent us out beyond your recall. Go to the limits of your longing and embody me. Flare up like a flame and make big shadows I can move in. Let everything happen to you, beauty and terror. But just keep going. No feeling is final. Don't let yourself lose me. Nearby is the country they call life. You will know it by its seriousness. Give me your hand. (coughs) So somehow in the poetry of life, we find ways of talking about these places outside of the known pathways, when perhaps our strategies don't really match up to what is needed, or we can't find our way sometimes through our, what we've done before, or through our known uh, approaches and responses. <clears throat> and certainly there are times in our life when all that we've built our life upon can disappear, can evaporate, and all that is known to us in the clear light of day doesn't really work and then we find ourselves in these territories of night. Uh, Not that night has to be a frightening or difficult thing because it's dark, it can be a very profound and, and necessary journey that we travel through. None of us can escape the night. Night can also be a place of rest and rejuvenation, but it is a place where we can't quite see in the way that we're used to seeing. So we have to find a different way of seeing, a different way of being. We have to trust, perhaps, being guided in the night by something else than we're used to being guided, that we see in the daylight. Often we're guided by the clarity of our thoughts, the strategies that we use, the views that we have and the positions that we take, and they all seem very comforting, but they don't always hold up when life presents us with uh, difficulties or we find the whole world quaking around us. And then we're having, we're having to to find another way of being. We have to draw on a deeper place from within us. So the poetry talks about the night. It talks about the unknown. It talks about the shadows. It talks about that which we can't see clearly. But it gives us faith that in those places, perhaps other unfoldings can happen. Other ways to orientate ourselves can un, can happen for us. I don't know if you ever read a book by Jacques Lusserain, a French uh, author from, uh, called Then There Was Light. Uh, He wrote it, uh, he was someone that lived, he was part of the French resistance in the Second World War. And he wrote it, uh, this book about his his journey. And his journey that he underwent involved him losing his eyesight um, when he was young through an accident that happened. And then having to learn to experience life in a very different way. He had to learn to sense others, sense things in a a radically different way. And he grew very good at that, actually. He grew extremely able to sense the characters of people through the sound, through the voice, through what he picked up intuitively when he was in the presence of others. And because he developed that sensibility, he was used by the resistance, the French resistance, to both... He also had an incredible capacity to memorise. So he both memorised an enormous amount of data, telephone numbers and of all the people in the resistance and all, all of the, the networks, he was able to memorise that, but he was also able to, they sent people to him to be interviewed because, of course, it was very dangerous. So if you had the wrong person, then you could be exposed and it would people would be endangered. So he... He, he, he was very good at that, but one day, he, someone came to him who seemed to be very authentic and he had a little bit of a doubt, but for some reason he dismissed the doubt and he went with this person and let them in to the resistance with the others. But he turned out that this person betrayed the whole movement mm-hmm. and Jean Luceron found himself being arrested and deported and, in, and put into one of the camps which amazingly he survived without sight, which was extraordinary, and had used his skill and his inner light and his inner presence to help people and survive that experience. Uh, It's a while since I read the book, so I'm a bit rusty, but it's an extremely um, inspiring book. And then he went on afterwards to emigrate to America um, he um, went through university, he had to struggle, basically his life was struggling all the way, but he develops extraordinary capacity and inner qualities through that struggle. And uh, you know, just to read of his life is an inspiration, but it also shows us that when we lose our way it, by the usual sort of guidelines that we have, that there are other ways of learning, other ways of listening. And so this also speaks to us about refuge, about where we take refuge, how do we find refuge, and how do we practice refuge before we are challenged by the very big things in life, because that is important as well. Ajahn Chah talked often about that this practice that we do is preparation. You know, the moments of sitting and being with a sort of, you know, boring mind or painful feelings, or just enduring what we don't want to endure, without freaking out, without crashing. All of that is a practice for steadying the heart, uh, for strengthening the heart, for refuge, for capacity, for the moments when something comes to us that really can potentially completely overwhelm us. So this practice of refuge, we can start to move into that through the the meditation, what we're doing, one of the things we're doing is many things that we're doing in meditation or not doing, or undoing. But one of the things that we're learning to do is to undo, actually, to not do so much, to, to come into presence in a way that is a sort of a stripping away of our strategies, of getting somewhere. So Ajahn Chah said, um, regardless of time and place, Dharma practice comes to completion at the place of laying down the burden. So this is, a, you know, this is a very important because often we approach meditation or spiritual life or anything from the place of what are we gonna get. And it's not that we don't get things, but actually a deeper way of practice is what are we going to let go of? What are we going to put down? And it's not just that we do that on an evening, on Sunday night at San Francisco inside, but we do that as an internal practice, because that brings us into refuge. And how do we do that? Well, one way, so Ajahn Chah again, drawing from his remarkable teacher, and a story that many of you heard, uh, when he went out walking with some of his disciples, some of his westerners, and he pointed to this field of very large boulders, and said, are those boulders heavy? And the disciples said, oh, Lung Venerable Father, they're very, very heavy. And he said, well, they're not if you don't pick them up. (laughs) So one way, what we do in meditation, we can feel, when we sit here, all those boulders we've picked up. We feel it in our shoulders, we feel it in the tightness in our belly, and our breath that's gotten very tight and short. So we take a deep breath and we breathe out and we start to put down the boulders. You know, all the stress, all the things we're trying to, to pull together and to fix and to sort out. You know, just to let it be, even for a moment to let things be, the things that have gone wrong, the things that we can't fix, the relationships that didn't quite work out, the, you know, niggly things that we hold on to, resentments, you know, maybe the things, big things, you know, the, the emptying of our bank account one day. <laughs> or, you know, the, the difficult things that we carry on and unnecessarily you know, create these burdens for ourselves. So, so, you know, one of the biggest burdens we have is trying to control the lives of other people, what they're doing, how they impact us, um, you know, either because we love them and we want to protect them, or because we don't like them, <laughs> and they're, they're bugging us, or, or, or sort of a range in between. So, to just let everything be. It's not to say we, don't, we can't respond, <laughs> that we can't be effective, but probably we can be even more effective if we're not coming from our strategy about how it should be, but we're listening and learning to, to come into a place like Jacques Lucerin or like this refuge where we're learning a different kind of capacity, a different way of relationship through the trust of letting things be so that we can actually tune in in a different way. So this is meditation, putting down our boulders, or if we can't put them down, at least changing the relationship to them so we can hold hold it a bit more lightly. We're not holding from a place of resistance or aversion or disinterest or trying to push the river upstream when it's flowing the other way that we're holding with some compassion, with some empathy, with some deep listening, and with some letting go, letting be. This then brings us to begin to taste, maybe, what the refuge is really pointing us to, which is the feeling of inner freedom. Even if everything around us isn't very free. And let's face it, how often is it very free? Not that often. (laughs) We work with the constrictions, we work with complexities, we work often with very heavy things, very difficult things that aren't that free. But it doesn't mean to say we can't work at being inwardly free. Because this is what the refuge is is pointing to. In the Anguttara Nikaya, which is a very old text, Buddhist text, it records the teachings of the Buddha, It says, the one who turns to relinquishment, to dispassion, is freed from thirsting after experience and is filled with metta, with loving-kindness. So this is another way that we can learn this art of letting go or letting be, of relinquishment, the word. Nikama, which, which has a, a very interesting meaning and uh, different meanings, but it's, uh, it's often translated as renunciation or relinquishment. Um, it has the sense of uh, letting, uh, letting things be, it has the sense of leaving behind, of going forth. Um, going forth from things like identification with any particular way of uh, being or views or our strategies or or more subtly the sense of self and its shapings. It's not that that is all happening but there isn't the sort of grasping and the identification which creates that sense of stress and limitation. Just the sense of flow instead letting go of craving, lust, desire, and so on. Really, the root of the word is interesting, ni. And when you take it back to the actual root, because it means a sense of completion or a sense of finishing. Allowing things to finish, allowing things to complete in each moment. And that's a, that's a skill. It doesn't mean to think say things are completed, because that's always ongoing, but to allow the inner relationship to what's being held to be released so that there's there's a finishing and completion and a freshness therefore and perhaps an emergence of the heart's energies that are freed off freed up from that constricting and that holding what emerges is a natural energy of the heart. This is another capacity for refuge because we're touching the heart in its own natural Space, natural, one of the natural energies of the heart is, is love, is empathy, is resonance, is capacity, rather than a collapse or hopelessness. And why do we uh, let things be? Why do we learn to relinquish? Because another teaching that really we should carry with us just as a sort of a background reference from the from the um, Diamond Sutra is that all conditioned dharmas, all things that come into existence, all experiences, all relationships, all feelings, all circumstances, all conditioned dharmas—dharmas meaning thingness—all that comes to being, comes into conditionality, comes into creation, including ourselves, each other, this hall, this land, even this earth, it seems. All conditioned dharmas are like dreams, are like illusions, are like bubbles, are like shadows, are like dewdrops, are like a lightning flash. Contemplate them thus. Contemplate them thus. Things arise, they're present in each moment, and then all things are actually completing, dissolving, because that's the natural way of things. Natural way of things. So we allow things to be as they are. We don't try and pin the, the butterfly to the board, hold on to the rainbow. We allow life to be what it is. And in that way, then the heart can remain more steady in the face of that which is changing, moving in the ways that things need to move. It doesn't mean to say we can't interact with that movement and change the flow and engage it, like was being encouraged to vote to end the death penalty. That's a good thing to do. They're definitely right action. But it means that that response is informed from this heart, this free heart. Because when this heart is free, what do we wish for? How do we respond? We just want the freedom of everyone else. (laughs) We want the freedom from conditionality, the freedom from suffering, because that's the natural state of the heart. We want to respond in this world to heal what is broken, to uplift what is downtrodden and to free what is unfree. So this heart, this is the refuge, taking refuge, is pointing us again and again back to the heart. Because the heart actually already is free, uh, already present. It's not in its natural state grasping anything. It has this this heart, this jitta, in its natural state has a quality, a certain kind of quality, which is called the quality of, of, which is the word Buddha comes from. Buddhi means it has, literally means it has a quality of knowingness. Buddhi means to know. Not necessarily to know lots of things, although we can know lots of things. It means that it actually, it, It knows in a particular kind of way. It knows in a way that is not making things an object to itself through the language, through the differentiation of the mind, through the objectification of how we posit things as apart from ourselves. But it knows (coughs) things as intimate to itself. This is the nature of the true heart, the real heart. Ajahn Chah was pointing us to. His heart is knowing and in fact it's connected, the the heart that knows is connected to the word Prajna or Panya wisdom in Buddhist practice Buddhist realization. And Prajna the Sanskrit word which uh, means to know or to be wise or to have wisdom also has a very interesting root. Uh, Jnā, J-N-A, Jnā, comes literally again connected with the word knowing. But the prefix uh, pra, prajna means actually before what is known. Before we know something as separate from ourselves through our language, through our designation, through our strategy, through our trying to <coughs> hold on, to grasp, or through our aversion and our resistance through the complexity of the way we move in relationship to the other in life. And everything, when we're in a sort of state of not really truly deeply knowing, wisely knowing, we're in a state of always being in relationship to other, that generates often a lot of reactivity, a lot of inner sense of we haven't got and we need, we've got too much of it and we don't want. You know, So it's a, it's a suffering in, in a very subtle way, this sense of isolation. But in that all begins to collapse into this true heart, when this true heart is freed from having to objectify the world, from having to hold things at a distance, and is allowed to be free and to be in its natural state, then what is known is actually not so separate. It's not to say that there isn't, there isn't a boundary psychologically and in language and for you know, the purposes of functionality in a complex world, but it means inwardly, deeply, this heart isn't objectifying things and is knowing things as more intimate to itself. Is feeling with, is another way of saying it. This heart knows, but it feels. It's sensitive profoundly sensitive. And unfortunately perhaps one of the biggest ills of our human condition is that we hide that sensitivity or it becomes clouded or it becomes shut down for all sorts of very good reasons. So when we meditate and we can take our attention inward it also gives us permission to at the very least be sensitive to ourselves. That's where we begin. Because we often override this being, ourselves, for all sorts of reasons. We have to get things done. In the meditation, we let it go. We let things be for a moment. And we become sensitive and we feel what we need to feel. Feel our body, feel what we feel. And we allow that to inform us. to be with that. And why do we do that? Because the more we can actually arrive into our, our heart, the more we can feel with life, the more authentic that we find ourselves being. And that authenticity, that connection with this deeper awareness and knowing can sometimes be surprising, can bring uh, surprising responses that we didn't know perhaps were possible for us if we we didn't really give that the chance. This is from uh, Kilisara, my book. It's from a story, a story I'm going to read you. And this was a a story that someone told us um, who was doing our retreat working with us at a retreat centre where we were teaching in South Africa. And they'd gone for a walk outside of the boundary of the, of the centre. I was walking with a friend in a forest when we realised we were being followed. And we knew at once the man was dangerous. He caught up, stopped us and asked me to go with him. As I refused and turned away, he grabbed my neck and pushed me to the ground. My friend threw a log at him, which gave me a chance to get up on my feet and we ran. But something told me to stop. I sensed that the chase was strengthening him, casting us as a predator and prey in an ancient story with an inevitable ending. To stop that story's momentum, I stopped running turned to face him and shouted, what do you want? In that moment, everything changed in a way that is impossible to describe. For the first time in my life, I was entirely without fear, knowing with utter conviction that no matter what this man did to me, he could never hurt me. As he grabbed my wrist, I was overwhelmed by a powerful love for him and for everything. The forest around us burst into radiant, pulsating life, as if the trees were on fire with the same love. In this indescribable experience, a few sensations remain clear. Everyone who had ever loved me came to mind and I felt their presence there among the trees. My protection was beyond question and I was overcome by a joyful peace I had never known. When the man held a knife to my throat and told me to lie down and be quiet, his sadness ached in me. A mother watching her small child hurt himself through ignorance might feel the same way. I wanted him to stop endangering himself in this way, not with any urgency of fear, but simply because I could see that his self-torment was unnecessary. I spoke words I don't remember choosing. You're a man. You're a good man. You don't hurt people. Whether or not he understood, I felt his relief as he too realized that he didn't have to do what he was doing. His grip on my wrist softened and I stayed with him, holding his hand and repeating the words, you're a man, a good man. By now, my friend had found a heavy branch as a weapon and was quietly making it clear she would put up a fight. I realized I released his hand, he lowered the knife and my friend and I walked away. That night, The man came to me in a dream. He wanted to show me something, a wound in the side of his back. It was a deep, fatal gash, raw and bleeding, and I knew it had been there a long, long time. With the same love I had known in the forest, I put my hand on the wound. Afterward, when I told the story to others, they commented on our courage. My friend showed extraordinary courage, but what happened to me was something different. It was grace, and it is everyone's. This is an important story. It's important because we often lose the faith in grace in something else beyond what we know our lives to be and what we expect the outcomes to be. And I think, you know, when we live in the times that we live in, where we're in so many uncharted territories in so many ways, and some of our strategies seem impotent or not enough, you know, where on every level, it seems, as human beings, we're being challenged. And we're being found wanting, spiritually, psychologically, ecologically, socially, politically, economically. All these spheres of our human life are really in, in crisis. We could say we're in a kind of a... Humanity's in a crisis of unprecedented levels, really, because that crisis is endangering everything. You know, we've had many, many crises before, in our evolutionary journey, but we've probably never gotten to the point where our crisis brought about by our own human minds has, has brought us to the point of endangering everything that we hold dear. And it's a very potent and powerful moment, and for many of us maybe we've come to those moments in our personal life through events beyond our control where we're brought to a crisis and we don't know what to do and we can't control the situation. And, and it demands, it demands something else. And this is why Ajahn Chah kept saying, your practice is a preparation for knowing where to place your faith. You know, knowing what not to place it in. It's not to say we don't care, we don't attend to the dharmas of everyday life, but we don't place our deepest faith in that which we can't really lean on or depend on we have to bring our faith back to this heart and we have to practice that in moments when we can and we know it's hard to do that because we get very distracted and very compelled with our you know where we're going and what we have to achieve and what we have to do and what we have to overcome. And maybe in those moments when we can't really, in, in a way, sometimes the worst experiences can sometimes turn out to be, we wouldn't wish them on anyone, we wouldn't wish them on ourselves or even on our enemies, but the worst things can sometimes turn out to open unexpected moments of grace, unexpected moments of love, where, as we heard in that story, for a moment, that person, it changed their life forever, actually, Uh, that experience and what she doesn't say in the book is that when she stopped running you know that's a very very powerful metaphor to stop to really really stop and to turn around and face the deepest fear with no strategy with just a complete vulnerability but what she doesn't say is actually this incredible sense of presence came like descended, she felt this sort of, almost like light was light and presence came and then found herself moving into that relationship from that place and those words she didn't choose that came forth. And I think it's a a beautiful um, description really and experience and inspiration for what this heart is of ours. It's not just my heart. This is our heart. This is our human heart. This is our true heart. The truest heart. And I think the crises that we face, whether personally and you know, many I know these this year is just like an absolute shitstorm, excuse my <laughs> language, all over the place. And I had just in this last week just so many, you know, friends, a friend who lost their partner, a friend whose mother stroke, has to fly off to Africa from New York, a friend who wrote to me from Israel, who's just said they can't, who's closing down their Dharma center, leaving because they can't stand the atrocities being committed in their name anymore. You know, that, these incredible, and these are very extreme uh, stories. Uh, just, you know, just day after day, or whether we've just weathered here in America. I won't even mention the word E-L-E-C. You know where I'm going. (laughs) You know, just this sort of, you know, these these sort of unbelievable ructions that are going on all over the place. The three countries that I'm deeply involved with, America, South Africa, and the UK, seem to have managed to be going into some sort of meltdown this year in all sorts of ways, teetering on the edge shadow energy is sort of roaring up for full in full view. You know, so where do we go? Where do we place our faith? You know, we do, do strategies. It's not to say that we haven't to try and do the best we can in every way possible, we must. But we can't control the outcome. So the refuge, this refuge ultimately, the Buddha talked, it's a place of deep equanimity. It's not to, its not a place of that we don't care or that we don't try and do the best we can, but we have to actually come to a place where we know what equanimity actually is and what it actually feels like, because that's the only place of freedom. And it's one of the deepest and most important doorways for... No, it's one of the most important doorways and <coughs> the most deepest insights of the Buddha into Nibbana, into... The unshakable, into the deathless, into the unconditioned, into the unborn, the unconstructed, all come through the doorway of dispassion and equanimity. Meaning that we aren't freaking out all the time over every blip and every circumstance. Or if we are <laughs> freaking out, we have a bit more equanimity about our freakouts because I freak out every day to tell you the truth about something that's going down. And for me, when I think about this, I realize I've had to really go and continue to go into places in myself. And this was a practice that was really um, transmitted to us through the monastic training. um, Every day we would reflect all that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. You know, that, that we, are, we have the nature, all of us have the nature to age, to sicken, to die. This is our nature. This is the vulnerable vulnerability of the realm that we're in, and all that we love, all that we're with. So it's a daily practice, not as a morbid practice, but a reality that, that we are in a realm that we have to face Very, very difficult things, like the uh, death of loved ones, like the sickness, like the ill health, like accidents that we heard tonight, terrible accidents. My own brother had a terrible accident that he didn't survive on a motorbike. And he changed the life of my parents, changed all our lives you know, these are the things of human life, you know, we, you know we're not alone, it's, all of us can talk about these things. And to even extend that, I realized to, to get to the place where perhaps even this very earth and everything we've known, that it might not be, that we might not be able to save that which we love and hold so dear, like the wildlife that we know that's being decimated, something that's very dear to all of us, and so on and on and on it goes. So to come to a place to know that ultimately there is a dimension of being, this unshakable heart, this free heart that the Buddha pointed to, that we can find refuge, that can withstand the worst of all eventualities, that can bring forth the best of all potentialities in response to whatever circumstance and that can do that not only in the face of suffering, but can do that with joy. Because there is an durability, there's capacity. There is that which, as my friend's story, when she realized there's a place within her that could never be harmed. And that place is real, the most real, in fact. You know, the Buddha said, we take the real to be unreal and the unreal to be real. This is the most real. It's aware, present, unshakable, deathless heart. And this is why we meditate to realize that, to take refuge there. The Buddha said, They go to many a refuge, to mountains, forests, to parks and tree shrines, people threatened with danger. That's not the secure refuge, not the supreme refuge. That's not the refuge having gone to which you gain release from all suffering and stress. But when having gone to the Buddha, this awareness, this present knowing heart, to the Dharma, to be present to the way things unfold, the dharma of the moment, to the sangha, to our capacity to practice collectively and personally with the dharma of the moment, the dharma of life. When we go to the Buddha, dharma and sangha for refuge, you see with right discernment the four noble truths, suffering, the cause, the cessation and the way out of suffering. That is the secure refuge. That's the supreme refuge. That is the refuge having gone to which you gain release from all suffering and all stress. So we have this chance, we have this opportunity, whatever life brings, whatever circumstance, to realize that Here and now, each moment, with each mindful breath, being with our body, being with how it is, we are returning to our deepest home. And that home is where we need to learn to stay, need to learn to dwell in, need to learn to befriend, in small ways, and then gradually, little by little, in ways that becomes unshakable to us. to go beyond gain and honour, renown, beyond all things that we can acquire, to know all of that is good, but will pass, to know that ultimately the refuge in our own heart, free heart, is our birthright and will carry us through whatever comes to us in our life, and through our deaths. So I'd like to offer these uh, thoughts, (coughs) Dharma thoughts tonight, this evening, uh, for your consideration. Let's just take a few minutes to sit quietly together, (coughs) knowing each breath. We breathe in, taking us into our heart awareness presence. And then as we breathe out, letting go of those boulders, those burdens, letting things be. Your breath will carry you, it's your deepest friend. Feeling the breath, fill your body with life. May your body be healed. With this breath, as you breathe out, may all burdens and the stresses be released. May the bodies of your loved ones Healed of each other in the bodies of all beings the heart body, the mind body, the physical body. May we extend unconditionally love compassion, mercy to all beings, wherever they are, whatever circumstance at this moment in time. May there be healing, may there be grace, may there be freedom. Allowing that prayer to be carried in the ancient mantra Om Mani Padme Hum Om, honouring the totality, Mani, the jewel of awakening the jewel of the free heart, Padme in the lotus of the many petaled manifestations within this world Hum, so be it  . <clears throat> oh Uh, good night, everyone. Go well. and wish you a good week. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.